We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Season 5 is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films, the Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of what our fifth season will be like. I'm sitting here with my producer, Graham Chedd, and our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Hi, Graham. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. Hi, Alan. Hi. So we're going to play you a little bit of some of the shows coming up and talk about our reactions to them and what we felt and learned uh, in those interviews, in those conversations. First one I want to play for you is the um, the first show of the fifth season which is a wonderful conversation I had with Melinda Gates. Of course, Melinda is partners with her husband, Bill Gates, in the, the largest foundation in the world. And they are successful at what they do, I think to a great extent because they follow a theme that we cover every show on this, on this podcast, which is listening. They listen to the people they want to help. And they find out what they really need, how they can really be helpful, not how they think they can be helpful, but how they really can be helpful. Melinda goes out and lives among the people very often, learns from their daily life what's important to them and how she can and the foundation can be helpful. Can we play a little bit from our, our conversation with Melinda? Yeah, this is, uh, she's talking about a time that she spent with her daughter, actually, in Tanzania, living with a family. And uh, she tells a story of, uh, unusually, actually, in Africa, the family all ate together. But then after dinner, things change. When dinner was over, the interesting thing was it was 10 at night, dark as can be out on the plains in Tanzania, moon's out. We're out in the dust as a group of women, Anna and her daughters and her sister and my Jen and me, doing the dishes in the dust in the dark. And yet one of the uh, sets of children in the home were twins, twin boy and twin girl, and they were just switching from primary school to secondary school and had to take their entrance exam. The family was incredibly worried about the daughter, Grace. So it was a male twin and then Grace. The male twin had passed his uh, exam and was headed into secondary school. They were so worried about Grace. 
And what I observed was that that young male at night could go study in the home under the one light bulb they had, but Grace was out doing dishes with us in the dark at 10 at night. And when my Jen came out of our little hut with a headlamp, Grace, who was a pretty shy adolescent, which is pretty typical at that age, she came right up to my Jen, and the one thing she asked us for while we were there is, may I have your headlamp when you go home so I can study at night? After being up so late working all day. Doing unpaid labor. That unpaid labor is a really important point. They, these women uh, that she lived with were expected to do work that was not paid for, but that while doing it, that work kept them from improving their their own personal lives. And these were cultural standards that everybody took for granted. Yeah, and this is a theme she picks up on a lot in her book, which is called The Moment of Lift. Um, and it's sort of something that, that resonates throughout. And I'm glad that she brought this up as a really good example. And she's such a good storyteller. Yeah. She, she tells a story with economy. She She gives you the details that make you see it. There's that lovely story she tells about her own household. Uh, yes, I love she's <laughs> after so dinner. open about her private yes, life. After dinner, the family gathers and starts to do the dishes, and then one by one they peel off, and <laughs> Melinda is left alone in the kitchen finishing off the dishes, so she issued an order. From now on, nobody melts away until everything's done. Yeah, nobody leaves the kitchen until mom <laughs> leaves the kitchen. And, and I love that not only does she help people in other countries and in our own country. But she helps us through the story she tells. She helps us understand the plight of our fellow humans. And just knowing about that makes it better for all of us. Yeah. And part of what she talked about in the in the episode with you, too, is that they that she and, and Bill would go into situations where they they had expectations of what was supposed to be or what was supposed to happen. And then the reality on the ground was so much more different than what they had expected. Um, and a lot of the stories that are in the book are that sort of reconciliation between what, what, the, what the data projected, what the science said was going to happen, and then what they actually found on the ground, and how they were able to bridge the gap between the, those sort of two extremes. Yes, she and said they, it was very important to be able to tack. To tack. Yes. Yes, she yes. used that word a couple of times. <laughs> Great analogy. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't necessarily get where they're going head on. Who's got the next show? I think it's me. Um, and I want to set the stage for the audience on the next episode. Um, and this is with, was with Pat Metheny, who is one of the great jazz Im- improvisers of all time. Um, and it was a sort of wonderful setting because uh, he was in your apartment and we all kind of gathered around and you two talked about music and improvisation and the it builds on themes that we've talked about before with Renee Fleming and that we will also cover again in, in season five with Yo-Yo Ma when you, you're going to talk about that a little bit later on. This is uh, really where you and Pat are both talking about improv in mm. your respective fields. You know, for me, the there are interesting aspects of living a life as an improviser. I mean, uh, in many ways, being an improvising musician has a kind of exalted status somehow, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, if you're well-known as an improviser, there's things that are acknowledgement of, like, your skills. But the truth is, we're all improvising all the time. We're improvising right now. Yeah. You know, you knew I was coming. I kind of knew I was going to be here. But we didn't know what was going to happen when we turned on the switch. Exactly. But we have a sense of the context of it. It's going to be an interview. We're going to talk roughly about things that 
maybe we share in terms of our experiences. And you have this great podcast, and I'm a musician. So we kind of have a little bit of a frame for it. What is also interesting, and I bet there's a parallel in your world of activities with this, is the idea of improvising over the long term. Like, for instance, I'll go out on a tour and I'll do 250 concerts. And yes, it's improvised, but we have a set of tunes that we're going to do. And, you know, not John Coltrane, not Charlie Parker, not Art Tatum. There is not a musician in history who stood up there set after set after set and completely reinvented their entire language Every time. There's this misconception among some of us, I think, that improvising means total freedom with no boundaries, no discipline. You just make stuff up somehow willfully. And at the same time, I think there are probably many, many levels of subtlety involved in, say, for instance, you you doing a show where you're going to do it a hundred nights in a row You have to make it new each time. You have to make it real each time with the materials that you have available. And it's kind of the same. Um, You know, for me, what I need are musicians who can tell a story because it's all about that for me. It's all narrative, expositional type improvising is what I need. I want to hear more about that in a minute, but finish this sentence. (laughs) But I need people who can tell a story about particular subjects, stay on the subject, but tell a different story about it each night. So in other words, this song is about Brussels sprouts. You can say anything you want. You can make up story about Brussels sprouts your mom used to make or Brussels sprouts from Mars, but you got to talk about Brussels sprouts on that (laughs) tune. If you start talking about green beans, I might have to get another bass player. I might have to get another bass player. (laughs) He, He brings up the whole idea for me of living life like an improvisation because Every moment is different, but it's possible to make every moment so regimented that it doesn't seem fresh. And if we let the moments be fresh and take directions that we didn't expect, and yet stay within the limits of discipline to keep it to Brussels sprouts when that's the subject, that sounds to me like a a pleasant way to live. Well, he touches on something, too, that um, you've you've never sort of— come out and express this, but the the observation I've always had is that improv takes a lot of practice, too. Yeah. And that it is something that, uh, you know, it is spontaneous, but to get to that point where you're comfortable in the spontaneity, you have to be very practiced. Um, and then you can sort of let the creativity and that storytelling that he talks about in music come out. Both Yo-Yo Ma and Itzhak Perlman said the same things to me that you develop, and most of the musicians I know say this, you first have to be so sure of your technique that in the performance you can forget the technique, but it's there. Yeah. And you're now free to be expressive in subtle ways. And that's what makes um, an interesting conversation in life interesting. Mm -hmm. If If you're talking to somebody who only wants to tell you how they have everything figured out. It's not as much fun as if they toss the ball back and forth. Well, speaking of tossing the ball back and forth... I'm tossing it to you right now. And I'm going to toss it to Brian Green. Oh, oh, yes. uh, Who you know for many years. Um, He and his wife, Tracy Day, founded the uh, 
World Science Festival a dozen years or so back. And you've been associated with that in one way or another ever since, right? Yeah, I, I've been helping. I'm on, I'm on the board. Uh, I, I've often gone and interviewed scientists on the stage at the Fed. The festival, the festival takes place once a year for five days, and there are about 50 events all over New York City. And we also have an affiliation with the World Science Festival in Brisbane. We did my play about Albert Einstein there. And it was we did it in New York and in Brisbane, and it was done in Moscow. And it's so interesting to see different cultures interpret the, the, the letters of Einstein in different ways. Well, Einstein came up right at the beginning of your chat with Brian. Oh, I forget that. That's I right. Thought. We were sitting at a table much like this one. Maybe in this studio. And the table's covered in the Sharpie messages that people Pe- leave. People and, who are interviewed leave their messages on, right, the, on the desk and in Sharpie. Brian sat down and saw something completely incomprehensible to most people, but it turned out to be the Einstein-Hilbert action, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very complex-looking equation that apparently is the basis of general relativity. So you spent the first 10 minutes or so tossing around general relativity and Einstein. I'm looking for it on the table I'm looking here. For oh, it. it is. It's right here. There it is. Yeah. There it is right there. Yeah, that's right. That is complicated. <laughs> and uh, you got fascinated by the idea of the curve. You were trying to understand the role of Cur- the curve, curve space. in space. That's right. Yeah. And it got into discussions about, would you believe, uh, a water-damaged version of the Mona Lisa. Now, what's that got to do with general relativity? Tune in to our episode with Brian Green, and you'll find out. Meanwhile, after having gone into the weeds with curves and general relativity, uh, you came out of those weeds with this question. What difference does what we've just been saying make to anybody? Well, I think I've, I've sort of got two answers to that question. The first is the, if you will, the more practical one, which is, look, you look out into the world and there's enormous opportunity and fantastic challenges that we face on so many fronts in alternative energy sources and climate change and the opportunities with personalized man- medicine and nanotechnology. And there's so much that we can do. And there's so much that we are going to attempt to do. And if you don't understand any of the underlying ideas, you can't participate in the decision making. You can't participate in giving your representative some sense of how you want things to go. So you become a bystander. And that, to me, infringes on the democratic process itself. So the health of democracy, I think, requires the populace to have some basic understanding of the key ideas that go into these decisions that will be made. But the answer that really touches me more deeply than that. That's important. I'm not taking away from that is when I see a young kid and I'm talking to them about black holes or the Big Bang and I and I see their eyes light up in a way that tells me that they're so fired up about this cool idea. And when they say to me, I didn't even know that was science. <laughs> you know, at that point, you say, wow, this is something that it's it's just tragic for 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 kids and adults to not at least be given the opportunity to wander around some of the most wondrous ideas that the species has ever developed. I almost consider it a birthright that you need to be given the opportunity to engage with ideas that allow us to see further, deeper, and more fully what reality is all about. 
I, I love that line that you have to be able to wander around and, and experience the ideas and feel them. It's like being in a museum and you're just wandering around and you're like, oh, what was that idea? Where did yeah. they come up with that? Yeah. That that seems to me to be a, a sort of at the heart of the answer to the question I kind of posed at the beginning of that clip, which is how are the most basic things constructed it doesn't seem to have much to do with our daily lives. And it seems to me the answer is what, what you just said, Sarah. It's, it's amazing stuff to wander around in it and be amazed by it, to be delighted and amazed by these things that we never thought of and never understood before. Because sometimes it takes 100 years or more, maybe even, even, even longer, to get the practical benefit. Einstein's work led to the cell phone in my pocket and GPS. But that was 100 years later. But there was 100 years in between where people could say, wow, that's amazing. As soon as, as, soon as I understand that, I'm going to be amazed by it. <laughs> and I, you know what keeps coming back to me in all these conversations is Michael Tomasello. Graham, am I right? Michael Tomasello was the one who said he felt language began with pointing. With pointing, that's right. And yes. as if to say, look at that. Check that out. I think that's interesting. You should find it interesting too. Yes, yeah. That, that's why we point. And that's why as children, some of the, one of the first things they do is point. I remember my children pointing. My daughter Eve's first word was pointing and saying more. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just as when we point to the sunset and say, look at that. Basic researchers are saying Look at that. Look how things might have started or how they, we know they did start billions of years ago. That's, that's one of us saying to the other, take a look at that. Isn't mm -hmm. that amazing? And it's a, it's a form of communication that's basic to us. It's what makes two people able to have a real conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious about what you're saying, why you're saying it, who you are, who's saying it. That was the case just a few days ago. You and I were together in the Berkshires, Yes, sat down in a recording studio, which was all set up to do a major recording with And Yo -Yo a beautiful Ma. recording studio. Wasn't that lovely? Yes. And well, you had, are we allowed to say whose it was? No, we're not allowed to say whose it was. Okay. It's a secret. <laughs> a famous recording artist. <laughs> uh, but you had been to Yo-Yo's concert just a couple of days before, right? Yes. And uh, he is engaged in this project called the Bach Project, where he's going literally around the world playing the uh, Bach's cello suites in 36 different locations. And he does it in a marathon way. He plays all six cello suites without an intermission, and that's over two hours of some of the most difficult music to, to, to get your arms around to play, but some of the most emotional and beautiful music I've ever heard. Yes, and for any of our listeners who are on Facebook, they he's been posting them on Facebook too, so you can oh, see really? them. Oh, yeah, really? I think there's a YouTube account with all of the uh, all of the recorded ones so far. What did we pick to play from that? You you were comparing notes about just before you go on stage for a performance. Oh yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's interesting. Very often, both of us have been asked, do you get nervous before a performance? And we we found out we had a very similar approach to performing, to what how we feel about the audience. I don't think this was true for either one of us when we began. We began getting nervous like everybody else. And I think as time went on, 
we found out how to translate that into something very positive and kind of uh, something that supplies you with energy and delight and, and turns the nervousness into something much more fruitful. So here's Yo-Yo. I think the most important thing that one can do as a performer is to be absolutely present. Mm. So here's my personal scenario. The hall is my living room. Mm. Everybody in the hall is here because I invited them to a party. I'm going to have a great time. That's exactly the way I feel. Really? Yeah. So I get, I in fact, where as a young man, I used to be nervous when I would hear the throng outside on the other side of the curtain. Now I get much more alert and I think, and I, when I start to smile and I think I'm going to be with them in a second, I'm going to be serving them a meal. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, We both have that same. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't know if you ever watched Julia Child on. uh, Yes. Yeah. uh, Well, uh, trapping the chicken. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you just pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) Put it back in the oven. Who's going to know? That's right. Because it doesn't matter that the sauce isn't right. It doesn't matter that you ran out of an ingredient because the purpose is the party. Yeah. So I think, and this is why I think asking the question who you're doing it for, because if in your head you're doing it to please your teacher Mm. or to impress your colleagues, Mm. right, who are looking for, uh, who know intimately what sauce you're making and, and, oh, it's missing, you know, pepper, right? Right. It, it, It just doesn't, it, it, you're going to be thinking about, shoot, I, I don't have enough pepper, and right, exactly. it's got it's got to be the sauce is not the center of the event. The center is the audience. This is where the living material comes in, where you want to make sure that the living material isn't delivered as a package, and your work is done. You have to make sure that the package, if it's a transplant of a heart actually gets to the patient and the patient lives. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, hey, I, get, I gave you the heart, you know. <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> so, what else do you want from me? <laughs> I love that he takes this idea that we talk about all the time as the basis of communication, the concentration on the other person, not on yourself, not on what you want to say to them, but on how they're getting it. And he turns that into the most beautiful expression of music. It's wonderful how this applies to so many different experiences. The other thing that Yo-Yo does, which you talked about a lot in your conversation, is that he uses these events to bring people together other than just in the concerts. So he told us about um, a recent performance of the Bark Suites in uh, Texas uh, at the border between Laredo in one side of the Rio Grande and Nuevo Laredo on the other side of the Rio Grande. And he was originally going to perform on the bridge, but it turned out there were too many people crossing back and forth. So they did two performances, one on each side. But he used it as an opportunity to, to 
explore how those two communities, one in Mexico, one in the United States, are just constantly interacting. He spoke of them as one community. People would leave one side of the border to go to school on the other side of the border or to work. I think that goes back to your your statement earlier there, too, that music is such a wonderful way to, to communicate with people, even if you don't speak the same language, because you can experience the same emotions from it. Um, so you can listen to the same piece and you can go through that sort of physical reaction to it, that emotional reaction to it, um, even even if you don't both know how to say the same word for happy or the same word for sad, but you're you're sharing that common experience through music. Your executive assistant, Jean, yeah. was, uh, she thought it was very funny because when I first meet somebody or I get to know them, one of the things that I do is that I, I give them a, a theme song in my head. Wait, wait a minute. You give everybody you know a theme song? I, I come up with a theme song Uh-oh, for everybody. We're all going to want to know. <laughs> this, is, this is horrible news. <laughs> what is it? Is it like uh, the jingle at the beginning of a television show? Like it's it's a it's am, a song. Am I, am I eight is enough. It's, it's it's a song that I that I know and I I think oh this person reminds me of this song. Ah, I see. And then for as long as I know the person, you you are then that song. Yeah. All right. Enough of this theory. What's Graham's song? <laughs> no, 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 this is way I cannot go there. Oh, come <laughs> on. <laughs> Graham, you, you may in fact be Elton John's I Was Made in England. All right. Well, that, that, uh, oh, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's, not, that's nice. Okay, so she's not going to tell me mine, so let's, get, let's move on. You're going to introduce us to uh, the clip that we have for Alison Schrager, who wrote this book, the title of which we just couldn't resist. An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Certainly an eye-catching title. But it, it, what's wonderful about it is that it's a serious but very delightfully written examination of risk. Yes. Tell, tell, us, tell us about your impressions of the clip you chose. Well, I think, uh, I'm not sure if I have the same clip that you have, Graham, but, um, and we can, you want to listen to the clip first and then talk about it? Sure. I think the biggest way you can manage risk in your life is to be very clear of what you want. Yeah, I, that's what I'm really interested mm-hmm. because now that we bring up these different areas mm-hmm. of life in which mm-hmm. evaluating risk becomes possible and important, mm-hmm. what, are, what are the things we have to keep in mind to, to assess risk better? Oh, I think, as I said, I go through all these fancy things, all the hedging, all the financial derivatives, but really being clear on what you want out of life Because you take risks to get what you want. So you need to take risks to get more. But you should only take a risk if it's going to bring you closer to something you want. And often we just take a risk for the sake of taking a risk because we just we want change or we want something new. But you really have to be thoughtful of, is this going to get me closer to my goal? I mean, I even see this in finance where, you know, I study retirement, where people aren't really thinking, well, what do I need in retirement? Instead, they're just like, well, I just want to have as much money as possible. Well, that's not really a clear financial goal. It's a lot harder <laughs> to make that goal if you're like— well, There are a lot of people who say, all I want is more. Yeah. And, you know, that—so the best way to do that is just take a lot of risk. But then, you know, you could have a stock market crash before you retire. So that you're sort of—you're setting yourself up for a lot of failure there, as opposed to if you're more thoughtful and you're like, I want $50,000 a year in income, you can invest for that, and you're much more likely to get that. So in every area of your life, it's a good idea to have a goal. Exactly. What, and then, what's next? Well, you want to have a goal. 
And you want to take risks that bring you closer to the goal. And then from there, you can do things to manage the risks. You can hedge, you can insure, you can diversify. These are the sort of three things you can do to reduce risk. But as we were talking earlier, you have to be clear that even if you have the best strategy in the world, you've diversified, you've hedged, you've insured, there's always things that can happen you don't anticipate. So you always have to be ready to, for, for the unexpected. I, I'd never heard anybody articulate this so clearly is, uh, with the idea that um, to take risks, you you have to know what the goal is. And for somehow, for some reason, I had never associated risk-taking with the activation or the idea, the ideation of a goal, of having that, that sort of end product in mind. Um, and she she kind of got to the heart of of why people do take risks and also that you know some of the behavior that she talked about in the book uh, and in the conversation was also that that the sort of maybe the dictionary definition of stupid should be anybody who takes a risk without a goal in mind you know that strikes home to me because in the car on the way over here you and I were talking about an expense our company might make mm-hmm. And that represented a certain risk because that would keep us from making other expenditures. We had to marshal our resources. And I'm not sure I was thinking about the risk we might be taking in terms of the goal. I was thinking, well, is that uh, is that too much to spend or not too much to spend? But what if I had thought more about what the goal, the overall goal was and why we were risking a little bit of that, uh, the money we had, I might, it might have been easier to come to a conclusion that would be beneficial to the company and not just to that little bit of wondering, gee, that seems like a lot, or let's go for it. Yeah, I think my, my sole existence is to keep you goal-orientated. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, so far it's working, so keep up, the, keep up the good work. So this brings us to another interesting discussion you had with uh, Robert Sapolsky. Yeah, a, a guy we've both known for a long time. He's uh, out at uh, Berkeley. Yeah, we've uh, interviewed him several times have, on Scientific have. American Frontiers yeah. and now on uh, Clear and Vivid. And he's written this wonderful book called Simply Behave. It's a massive tome, but it's very funny as well as being very informative. And uh, his, you were just talking about having to make a decision. Uh, his, the essence of this book is that when you make a decision – Something immediate is happening, but you have to track back, 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 back. You look at someone who's just done something wonderful and altruistic or brutal and savage or ambiguously somewhere in between, and like a classic human response we have is to, in effect, say, why did they do that just now? Mm. And when you ask that, you're asking something about what neurons in different parts of their brain did a fraction of a second ago. But you're also asking about what environmental stimuli in the previous seconds to minutes triggered those neurons. And you're also asking, what did hormone levels that morning have to do with making those neurons more or less sensitive to those triggers? And then you're often running and neural plasticity, how has experience changed those neurons in previous months? And Then you're back to adolescence and childhood and fetal life, which has a huge amount to do with what sort of brain you're going to have as an adult, deciding whether or not you're going to do that critically wonderful or critically horrible thing. 
Then even further back, genes come in and culture because the way you were raised within minutes of birth reflects the culture your ancestors were coming up with centuries ago, what kind of ecosystems shaped those cultures. And then at the bottom of the barrel, why we're evolved into this kind of species instead of that kind. So if there are so many factors involved before you can figure out the source of a behavior, how can you possibly put them all together? There are so many branchings, it seems to me, that you have to take into account. Well, the mindless conclusion to all of this is we're complicated. Uh Like, that doesn't get us very far. Um, I'm increasingly convinced the much more, the most important conclusion from all of it is we're complicated, so you better be really sure and really careful and really cautious before you decide you understand why somebody did something, especially if that's something that you're judging harshly. It's like trying to judge how a movie got to its conclusion by watching only 30 seconds of it. Mm -hmm. You're missing where all the influences came in. That's uh, startling to me. It makes me think I have no chance of understanding why I do anything. (laughs) (laughs) But I think he was focusing, and I caught this more listening to it this time, I think he was focusing more on figuring out why other people come to the behaviors that mm-hmm. they come up with. Um, and if we're, especially as he says at the end of that clip, if we're going to judge them harshly, maybe we should think a little bit more deeply about how they arrived at that behavior. Maybe they're not so culpable of uh, some terrible deed and maybe they don't deserve the kind of punishment we immediately uh, envision for them. He certainly raises really interesting questions. He thinks very deeply into things. It's a very interesting conversation with him. I can't resist a little bonus clip from uh, Sapolsky. It was uh, about his early work, and he was just in his early 20s, spending time in Africa watching baboons. Adolescents get bored. They're sick of this old, boring little town. They want to go see the world, or at the very least, the troop on the other side of the stream. And I've I've seen this many times with my baboons. Like a troop runs into the neighboring troop, and they're on either side of of some stream, and they all yell at each other for a while, and they get bored with that and go back to eating. And everyone's back to the usual, and then you spot this little squirrely adolescent guy from your troop who's on the edge of the stream, and he can't believe it. Different baboons. Look at all of them. And he sits there for an hour and then goes back. And then a week later, his troop runs into this other troop, and he goes down, and he sits on the other side of the stream for 10 seconds, and anyone there who looks at him, he scampers back. And then a week later, he spends the afternoon on the other side. And it's just this, it's the most exciting thing. My God, different baboons. I'm getting out of here. (laughs) (laughs) It's a course that every adolescent, whether a baboon or a chimpanzee or a human, go through, right? Now, this reminds me of another song that I, I will now uh, ascribe to to Robert Sapolsky, which is there's a, a song that goes, high school never ends. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you have for me. <laughs> I, I will tell you, I, I, do, I do have a song for you. All right. It, there's a, a a band called Carbon Leaf, and Alan, I know you, you would not ever listen to this in your, in your entire life, um, 
but the song is called What About Everything. Oh. And it, it's a it's a very questioning, very kind of probing song where they he asks, what about everything? And then it goes into a number of different questions. Sums you up. Have my own song. It's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> you were very intrigued by, you've always been very intrigued by what comedy, what makes comedy comedy? Yeah, what makes things yeah, funny? It, part of my life has been devoted to doing comedy. So we and invited, I, don't think, I don't think anybody really knows what makes things funny. <laughs> well, so we invited a couple of guys who you've known for a while, right? Yeah, Alan Zweibel, Alan Zweibel. and Frank Santopadre. That's right. And in this little clip we're going to play, the, the character, the name that's mentioned that you might miss is Lorne, and he's talking about Lorne Michaels. Lorne Michaels, who uh, created Saturday that's right. Night Saturday, what is it? Saturday, Saturday Night, Night Live. Saturday Night Live. Thank you very much. Yeah, the, the, the thing that I like about this, this part of the conversation is it highlights the, a kind of a deep question about people who are funny. People, Alan Zweibel has written plays and movies, but both he and Frank have written thousands and thousands of jokes. And the joke maker, I think, plays the role in our society that the court jester played in the old days or the Shakespearean fool who can say things that are impolite, inappropriate, but because he's either witty or just plain crazy, he gets away with it. But there's a kernel of truth in it, and there's always a moment where the uh, the, the king character says, you know, there's some truth in that. <laughs> and that's what makes... The, the role of the court jester funny, but the question is, how far can you go? When have you gone too far? And how do you how do you find out you've gone too? How can you predict how far you can go? And the answer turns out to be what we talk about and think about all the time, which is what's going on in the other person. So in this clip, uh, Alan Zweibel is going to be the person that maybe answers your question. And you need to know before we listen to it that uh, he worked for Saturday Night Live for a while and uh, actually gave Lauren Michaels a book of 1,100 jokes <laughs> in order to get the job. <laughs> so this, is, uh, this picks up the point you were just making. I'm so interested in how we relate to one another, how we are sensitive to one another's feelings. And both of you guys have that ability. And yet you both are experts at joke making. And we're talking about how joke making, at least in this part of our conversation, includes breaking social norms, talking about things that other people find untouchable in conversation. How do you keep contact with the person you're talking to? How do you know that you can go so far with this person you're, you're being sociable with? That's a good question. Well, that's, yeah, there's a little bit of a How do you know? Feeling out is a little bit of a dance. I can go this far. Uh, maybe I, if they laughed, okay, maybe I can go a little further. But there is a little bit of, uh, um, of a dance that's played there. You, it, what, a great example of that, I think, was, and maybe you guys remember it, once again, right after 9-11, about a week or so later, um, Saturday Night Live came on for the first time since 9-11. And in the cold open, there was um, Mayor Giuliani and a bunch of firemen and uh, policemen, and they did a tribute about 9-11, and it was very, very, you know, straightforward mm -hmm. and somewhat somber. And then Lorne walked up to them and he spoke a little bit and then asked Mayor Giuliani 
he said, listen, um, are we allowed to be funny? And Giuliani said, why start now? Okay, <laughs> very clever. Okay, my guess is Lorne wrote that, okay? And um, th there was the acknowledgement that, you know, when are we allowed to laugh again? Yeah. How can we laugh again? When is it okay? And that broke the ice, you know? So, um, once so that was an awareness of what the audience yeah, was going through. Yeah. And, and getting permission to go further. That in some ways makes me think of when you go to a, a funeral and you're, you're supposed to be very somber, you know, you want to cry, you want to show all the emotion, the, the acceptable emotion, and then somebody does the most elegant, most wonderful thing, which is they make a really funny joke, and the whole place just explodes in laughter. Yeah, some of the biggest laughs are at funerals. I, I think that's the best, and though. And when I go to a funeral, I come back, somebody says, well, how was it? I say, oh, hilarious. <laughs> Well, this has been a really interesting preview. This, and I, I, uh, I hope the, the folks listening have enjoyed it uh, and are still uh, listening. I think it's uh, the only preview that's longer than the season itself. <laughs> you needed to make some uh, announcements, I believe. Oh, yes. Oh, it's the, it's the viewer appreciation time of the show. Um, so we did want to give a really big thanks to all of our fans and uh, just to, to tell you all how much we genuinely appreciate uh, you listening to this, um, to uh, putting up with us, especially Alan, um, <laughs> uh, to, um, to writing to us. And if you do want to keep writing to us, the address is podcast at aldacommunication.com. That's communication without the S. And Alan, for our audience, why does communication at all the communication not have an S on it? Well, I wondered why sometimes it has an S and sometimes it doesn't. And I tried to study it a little bit. And as far as I can make out, the accepted idea is that communication is something that happens between people. And communications with an S is the technical ways in which a message is broadcast. More, more than one-to-one. -one. So a podcast is a form of communications, but what we're doing is communicating no S. It's just yeah, yes, back-and-forth communication. Yes. So, so Graham, get... <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> no, Everybody no, I, look at Graham now. I, I was going to say something <laughs> impolite, but I decided that it was not going to work. Actually, he did, and Graham edited it out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh. it's right here on the floor. <laughs> Audience appreciation was telling them how much we we love them, right? Yes. I thought you were going to give them something. Oh, I was also going to— That was a real tease there then. Well, if if they'd like to get something for themselves, they could go to podswag.com slash Alda because your new gear is all available and all oh, out. Oh, that's great. So the great gift we're giving them is the chance to buy something. This <laughs> <laughs> is really— We really, really love you guys. Really audience appreciation time. <laughs> Um, actually, I did want to remind everybody, if you if you are not following us on social media, that you can go to facebook.com slash clearandvivid, or you can follow us on Instagram at clearandvivid. And Alan, where are you on Twitter? At Alan Alda. At Alan Alda. And you can also go to alanalda.com to uh, find ways in which to subscribe to all the various ways that you can subscribe to the podcast at 
at Apple Podcast, at Stitcher, at Google Play, at iHeartRadio. We are on, I think, every single platform now that you can ever possibly imagine. Um, and also, we wanted to re- to remind you all that we do a number of workshops per year at the Alda Center. So you can go to aldacenter.org slash workshops. And we do some that are uh, with clients on the road. And we also do some here in New York City for people who are in the STEM and medical uh, fields. And we also have Power Connection, I think we mentioned, that's coming up December 6th here in New York City. Is that sold out yet? Uh, almost. It's about halfway sold out. So uh, the these are small immersions. They're anywhere from 16 to 32 people. So you do want to go and sign up fairly quickly because they, they do sell out very fast. Uh, and again, the website is aldacenter.org slash workshops. One thing I always like to mention is that uh, whatever we take in uh, from our ads goes to support the Center for Communicating Science. So just by listening to the ads and listening to our programs, you're not only, I hope, having fun, you're also supporting the better communication of science. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful. Well, we're going to wrap it up, guys. I think we pretty much covered everything that we usually do in our credits, so we don't have to play the credits, except to say that uh, your host is Alan Alder. And you're Graham Chid. And I'm Sarah Chase. And the other couple of memberships of our partnership. Dan DeZula. Is is, the, yes, we're going to, I'm going to be handing this over to Dan, who will make us all sound great. Right. And Sarah Hill is our publicist. Sarah Hill is our great publicist and also does our social media. And our tech guru, who is right now doing her MBA at Fordham, the lucky girl, uh, that is Allison Costin. And we wish her all the best of luck in her MBA program. And tune in next week, right, for the first episode of the new season. And uh, it, it's a really wonderful season. I'll, I look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.